This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Hello, I'm Tom Scragg. I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Longmore from Liverpool John Moores University. Yeah, hello. Oh, and welcome. Your second time on the Jodcast. It is indeed. It was uh, quite a few years ago now, but yeah, it's great to be back. And welcome back. So, Liverpool John Moores University, how long have you been there? So, I've been there five years now. Okay. They have a big astronomy department? Yeah, so big and growing. So when I joined, the eight new faculty joined, and we've been sort of growing in terms of PhD students and undergraduates and things. So yeah, it's a definitely a growing department. Okay. You run your own telescope? We that? do, yeah. This is one of the sort of unique things. We run a telescope on La Palma. So it's the largest fully robotic telescope in the world. So it's designed to go after things that go bang, like supernova and nova, get on them as quick as possible after they've been discovered. Robotic in the sense you control it remotely? Yes, in robotic and autonomous. So, in other oh, words, right. yeah, it's set up and somebody clicks open the dome and then it decides what it's going to observe. So it will depend on what's up at that time and what they're trying to monitor. So it's completely automated. It's quite amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. The downside of that, of course, is no trips to La Palma. Yeah, there are very <laughs> few, very few. Yeah. We get quite a few people going out to use the different telescopes there, so... Yes, yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of bidding for time on the various telescopes. Absolutely. Okay, what's generally your fields of interest? So I'm interested in star formation. So my sort of overarching theme is sort of... We, we know the universe starts out as gas and eventually ends up in stars. I'm trying to figure out how does that happen? How do we get this spectacular variety of stars and planets that we see around us? We've covered star formation a little bit in the recent past, mm-hmm. so it's quite topical. It's quite an interest. I know you're here to do a talk today at um, JBCA. Yep. So I'm looking forward to that. But you're talking about star formation in the, the heart of the galaxy? Yes. And some kind yes. of anomaly there? Yes. But what's really interesting about this, I guess most star formation, when people study, they tend to go for things that are very nearby. And there's a good reason for that, because they're brighter, you can study them in more detail. So a lot of what we know about, for example, how our solar system formed is from observations of regions nearby Earth. That's got its pros, but one of the difficulties there is, in fact, the environment where stars are forming nearby Earth today is not the environment in which most stars formed. So it turns out most stars in the universe formed sort of a long, long time ago, so around the redshift of two. So the universe was still very young, and the conditions back then were completely different. The gas was a lot hotter, okay. a lot uh, denser, and we want to understand how most stars in the universe formed. And it turns out the centre of our galaxy is a very good proxy for what was happening in the early universe. Oh, interesting. I thought of it that way. Does it varies with the metallicity? Yes. The composition of the gas clouds? Yeah. So is that different at the centre of the galaxy from the rest of our galaxy? It is, yeah. So okay. the metallicity is higher than it is in the solar neighbourhood, but the main difference is, is the gas is a lot more, is a lot hotter and a lot more dense. So does your work involve lots of times, lot of time on telescope panel collecting data? Or? It does, yes. Yeah. So I'm using primarily ALMA, the interferometer on the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's just an amazing instrument. So many new discoveries with the telescope. Is that infrared? Near infrared? It's, no, that's, that's uh, in the submillimeter. It's a radio telescope. It does get confusing when you talk about frequencies and wavelengths. Yes. In terms of frequencies, it's sort of hundreds of gigahertz, and wavelengths, it's millimeter wavelengths. This portion of the electromagnetic spectrum is excellent at picking up the cold universe. So the cold regions where stars are about to form, as they're collapsing under their own gravity, this gas is very cold, and ALMA's designed to be able to detect and derive the properties of that very cold gas. Okay. 
So what is it you're actually looking at in terms of a signal or a marker that helps decipher what's going on? Yep, so I'm looking for basically clouds of gas and dust. So the dust, just like if you haven't cleaned for a week and dust will accumulate in your house. So it turns out there are particles of dust throughout the hole permeating the gas in between stars. And me looking for this gas and this dust that's in a very cold phase. So it's getting very cold and very dense and it's collapsing to form stars. So this dust glows and it glows at this millimetre wavelength regime. And ALMA can pick up that glow from the dust. And with that, we can pinpoint where new stars are forming in the centre of the galaxy. Okay. ALMA is an interferometer? It is. So you're actually making pictures as well as measurements? Absolutely, yeah. So it's sort of 64 antennas that are all pointing at the same region of the sky, and the signals are combined to simulate a, a observing with, with a very, very large telescope, and they give us this information we need. Okay. So what's the anomaly in the centre of the galaxy, then? Why is it more closer to...? From observations, we know what the gas temperature was like early in the universe so we can go measure that we can look back and see when the universe was only a few sort of uh, 100 million years after the big bang and we know that the gas was much hotter maybe 100 kelvin as opposed to so so 10 kelvin uh, which is in sort of star forming clouds near us and so we look around the universe and say well where are regions that have that kind of gas temperature and we look in the center of our galaxy it also has gas temperatures of similar. Right. I hadn't appreciated the more outlying regions were significantly colder and the centre was hotter. So presumably affects the rates of collapse, the rates of formation. It, it does. It, it changes It changes a lot of the physics that drives what's going to form stars. One of the big puzzles is that we know, on the one hand, we know there's a lot of gas in the centre of the galaxy and it's very dense, but it's not forming stars like it, sh- it would be if you took that same gas and you put it in the solar neighbourhood, it would be forming stars like crazy. But we know that it's not in the galactic centre. So there's this conundrum of how does the universe manage to get all this gas in a very small volume and stop it collapsing? So that's the physics I'm really interested in. Is what's There's some process that's supporting the clouds from collapsing, and we're trying to understand what that physics is. All right, okay. How's it going? Good. I think we've got the answer. Oh, so this is science, so it may well be proven wrong, <laughs> but we're um, so what I'm here today is to present our results that we think we understand. So what's actually happening, uh, you can sort of visualise this as when you have your bath and you pull out the plug from the bath, the water spirals down and you create little whirlpools and things. Well, the same thing happens towards the centre of our galaxy as the gas gets funnelled in and it spirals in towards the bottom of the gravitational potential, so that's where the centre of the galaxy is. As it's in-spiralling in here, it's adding turbulent energy into the gas. So it's the angular momentum mm-hmm. is being transferred into basically supporting the gas against its own weight. So this okay. in-spiralling motion, we think, is the key to the fact that you can get gas to very high density, but there's more energy in the gas to stop it collapsing. That's what we think the answer is. So do you think it's due to the Rotational motion rather than additional heating, say? The heating is very important, but it would still collapse. So it would collapse in a different way. It would collapse to form stars, but it would do it slightly differently. You need additional energy on top of that extra energy from the heat to the extent we see. How much time have you spent, or have you managed to get on ALMA to get the observation? A lot. We've been very lucky, so it's incredibly competitive to get time. So we've had many tens of hours of time on ALMA, so we've been very fortunate. And I've been supported, in fact, by people here at the ALMA Regional Centre in Manchester, so they've been fantastic support for us, helping us reduce and, and understand our data. So, yeah, we've been very lucky. Okay. No, it's good. Luck is always a, a factor in yep, these things. absolutely. Right place, right time, yep. information. Yes. 
So how did you get into this area? What sparked your interest in star formation in the first place? I guess the overarching question I've always been intrigued by is how did all this get here? Where does life come from? Where is it in the universe? I mean, that's such a, a large and intractable problem. I think it's, you know, when many of us maybe look up at the stars and, and think, well, what, what else is out there? But this is a way to tackle one small portion of that bigger question. So I, it gets me up of a morning. <laughs> okay. Do you work on your own or do you have a team of, oh, uh, of yeah. people? Yeah, so this is very much part of a team. So I've got a group. I've got some, been lucky enough again to have some great um, postdocs and PhD students and international collaborators all around America and Australia and Europe. So it's very much part of an international uh, collaboration working on this. Well, moving on slightly, how long do you think before this kind of research becomes incorporated into the next generation of textbooks? So it becomes something that's taught to new students. Excellent question. I'd like to hope fairly soon, really. I guess the problem is there's already some fantastic textbooks out there Mm. on star formation. I think our current picture's being overhauled at the moment. We're in a state of going from, as I say, from looking at individual regions nearby the sun to really having a picture on trying to link that to what's happening on galactic scales. I think in the next five to ten years, we will, linking that very small scale picture, so how does an individual star and its planets form, to the very larger scale picture, how what's happening in galaxies, and once we've made that connection, then I think we need to we can go back to our textbooks and come up with a fresh. I'm not saying that other things were wrong, but we just have that bigger picture that will enable us to to sort of get the holistic understanding. I think that's you know on on five to ten years time scale. It certainly seems when you're reading textbooks from ten years ago, sometimes five years ago, yeah. you think I'm sure all that's different now. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, we progressed. Yeah. Yes. Another question that slightly to the side. There's a lot of interest, has been a lot of interest recently, in planetary formation from the disks of stars form. Yeah. Given different conditions at the centre of the galaxy, is it potentially going to be a different mechanism or affect that process? That is a fantastic question. That's exactly what we're trying to answer. So there's this issue about them not forming very efficiently. But when they do form, they form like crazy. And so what you get in the galactic centre is you get clusters of stars maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of stars forming in the distance between us and our nearest star. So trying to form that amount of stars in such a small volume, you think that the physics, you know, disks, because the stars are whizzing past each other, the disks would get truncated. It's a horrible place to be born inside (laughs) one of these star clusters. You do not want to be near a very massive star with all the the radiation and the winds coming from those stars. So in some intuitively, there's something has to be different and because we don't have very many examples we're not sure what's perplexing is that when you look at the end product of star formation so when you look at say you count the distribution of the you count the masses of stars in the clusters and you compare that distribution to the masses of stars nearby earth they're the same which given you know intuitively you'd think it would be much more difficult in a cluster stars trying to form a star in a cluster would be much more difficult but yet the end process it doesn't seem to care so there's this another conundrum there and we, we haven't got to the bottom of that one either right that's interesting i mean again going back to some of the things we've discussed before in the early universe you know a lot of hotter brighter bigger stars yes yes and now we're seeing conditions where the stars in general are smaller live longer 
which is fortunate for us, else yeah. we wouldn't be here. Do you see the same effect? Are you saying they're the same end product? So is that the same sort of mass range that you see? Yes. Yeah, so one way of putting it would be if you you were to go to the centre of the galaxy and you, I was to ask you to count the mass of 10,000 stars and then I was to say, right, to do exactly the same thing within the vicinity of the solar neighbourhood and you were to count the mass of those stars, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Given the conditions are so different, that is a big puzzle. Why is this distribution the same in both environments? And... There are people have got ideas of what it might be, but there's definitely no home run on what the answer to that is. That's interesting. I mean, all of the in some cases you're talking about individual processes. Yeah. In other cases, it's a statistical result. Yes. Or a pop result, an evaluation of a population. Yeah. Okay. What's the next couple of years of work for me? So yeah. I'm now that we've found these, we've used Alma to find these gas clouds. With Alma, we've been able to zoom in and high detail these gas clouds, and we've managed to pick out the regions that we think are forming some of the most massive stars in the galaxy. And they're they're very young. And these very massive stars are incredibly important for the way the universe evolves. Because they're so massive, they're so luminous, they inject so much energy into galaxies that they completely shape the way galaxies evolve and the way they look today. The problem is we don't know how these very massive stars form. So what I'm really interested in is trying to, so we found what we think are these initial stages of these extremely massive stars. The group I'm working with, we're trying to now zoom in to exquisite detail and watch how these things form. So to look at how these stars are building their mass. And if we can understand the physical processes that control that, then that will help us understand how galaxies evolve uh, across cosmological timescales. Wow, that's really looking across a huge timescale and right back to the early universe. That's the hope. That's the ambitious goal. We'll see how far we get, but that's the... Oh, the yeah, well, I look forward to that. Yeah. Look forward to you coming back in a couple of years. Yeah. This is your main project, yes. obviously. Yeah. Are there other projects that you work on as well? Yeah, so several in astronomy. So the one that I guess I'm most, probably most off the wall, is I've started using astronomy to help conservation ecologists. Okay. So this is what? <laughs> so it turns out my next door neighbour is an ecologist, and one of their big problems is trying to, with endangered species, things like rhino, which are being poached. And so they have a big difficulty in trying to find these animals. So what we've been doing is to take drones and put thermal cameras on the drones. And so they fly these drones over these national parks. And we're using astronomy software to pinpoint where the animals are. So astronomers are very good at detecting weak signals, isolating, for example, stars from the background. So we've developed all this software. And right. instead of, so we're basically using, doing astronomy, but instead of pointing out into space, we're pointing back down to Earth. So I'm, wow. I'm involved in that and quite excited <laughs> about it. It's uh, different to get up in the morning and, and do ecology as opposed to astronomy. So That's very interesting. We do see a lot of the students that we have that do the courses, do their PhDs and move over into to data science yes. and processing information rather yep. than just sticking uh, straightforwardly with astronomy. Yep. And it's I mean, it's interesting to see the practical applications of some absolutely. of this work as well. Yep. The skills you learn as, as an astronomer are widely applicable elsewhere with a bit of inventiveness you could apply your trade elsewhere and hopefully do some real good at the same time yeah it's, it's interesting to use drones as well so it's moving away from just satellite observations of the earth to to more mobile platforms absolutely so yeah there's a whole other story we can get into <laughs> yes. with that one outside of astronomy yeah. and ecology then yeah. what do you like to do so i love music so when I'm often when I'm sort of beavering away on a data set or sort of writing a paper, I'm sort of listening to music and hoping no one comes into the office to see me sort of, you know, jamming around with my headphones on. 
So yeah, I love music, I love sport, okay. football, running, um, anything to sort of keep active. Right, yes, it's important. You've got to balance things. A lot oh, yeah. of people will spend, will just focus all their energies in front of the screen. Yeah, think. I can, that's a simple. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for that, Stephen. It's yeah. been nice talking to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you too. Thanks for coming. Yeah. I look forward to your talk later today. Excellent, good. <laughs> okay.